Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Economist Corner, a CETA podcast where we break down the latest economic news and policy updates. I'm Jared Ball, Chief Economist at CETA. Well, Australia's economy has already bounced back better than expected from the effects of COVID-19, but it is clear that our long-term recovery will depend on opening borders and resuming normal trade. Yet ongoing uncertainty in our trade relationship with China on the one hand and the opportunities presented by new trade agreements on the other make it difficult to know exactly where trade will land after the pandemic. How much does the Australian economy depend on normalising the China relationship? And are we seeing any progress in diversifying Australian trade? To discuss the role that trade will need to play in Australia's recovery, I spoke with Professor Peter Draper, Executive Director of the Institute for International Trade at the University of Adelaide. Professor Peter Draper, thank you so much for joining us today to talk all things trade. Um, I guess to start, start at the top, you know, it's quite interesting at the moment just getting a read on uh, the strength of Australia's trade, um, particularly given that there's a lot of noise, both on kind of the negative and, and positive side. I guess there's obviously limits that we have right now on people movement and the impact that that has on our tourism and, and international education exports but on the other side you know we've got record iron ore prices that are that are really pushing our um, iron ore exports up so where are you where are you kind of seeing the strength of australian trade at the moment and and how do you think we might emerge whenever this sort of covid disruption starts to um, dissipate uh, in terms of in terms of global people movement as well yeah so obviously the big story is iron ore and that's inextricably linked to the China story, which we'll get on to later. Uh, so that's been the standout success. We saw that play out in last week's budget. Um, on the service side, there are obviously uh, challenges, and you've mentioned the two big ones in particular. So the international education market, traditionally the fourth biggest services export, that's in all sorts of trouble for all the reasons I think we know well. But similarly, tourist uh, arrivals are down uh, substantially for the same reasons, uh, COVID-induced. We've also seen some growth in some services areas, again, uh, uh, substantially pandemic-driven, so in the IT services particularly. Um, so, uh, overall, I guess a story of uh, COVID-induced retrenchment with some outstanding success, particularly in iron ore, and some diversification, which we'll get on to, to later, I'm sure. And just thinking about the policy side of this, um, how have you seen uh, Australia continuing to engage in, in global trade dialogue uh, at this time? and, and and how are you feeling about the, the kind of general state of play there? So Australia attacks the rules-based system, by which we mean the World Trade Organization, particularly seriously, being a, a middle power. Uh, the WTO is important for Australia. It sets the rules. It regulates the playing field, warts and all. There have already been two Australian ministers that have visited the new Director General in 
the World Trade Organization or of the World Trade Organization in Geneva. So that's a signal of serious engagement and Australia is leading on a number of fronts in the WTO. And that's building up to a ministerial at the end of this year where there's quite a lot on the table that's of direct interest to Australia. I won't go into the details. Um, on the regional front, um, probably the big story, two big stories this year are the ratification and the implementation, ultimately probably next year, of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement. So that's, if you like, the ASEAN plus five India stayed out of that agreement. Uh, unfortunately, so part of the trade diplomacy story this year will be about trying to get India back in. And then, of course, the potential expansion of the CPTPP. Uh, so, and there it's really, uh, it's about managing the queue of potential entrants. So countries like the UK, first and foremost, um, the Philippines has been mentioned, a few of, of the ASEANs that are out of Korea also comes to mind. Um, and who knows, beyond that, potentially the EU. But on the bilateral front, the big story is the EU free trade agreement and, of course, concluding the, the UK agreement. So it's a very busy trade agreements, trade cooperation agenda. I should just mention as a footnote that there's also the implementation of the PACER Plus, uh, uh, which is the Pacific trade agreement that's taking place with an implementation package behind it. And that's important in the regional geopolitical setting, obviously. Well, I think it's it's excellent to hear that uh, COVID hasn't slowed down the pace of um, continuing to negotiate on trade agree trade agreements and and participate in in the global trading system. Uh, on another level, I think sometimes we forget that a lot of the really important trading relationships that are built up between businesses uh, and also perhaps the investment relationships as well as well that are built up across borders. Um, come down a lot to trust and, and to kind of strategic relationships that are built up over time, including a lot of face-to-face -face, uh, contacts. So how do you think um, we're faring without that? And, and do you see some longer-term kind of implications of that? Will we find that there's a bit of a uh, perhaps a, a slowdown or, or some opportunities that we, we don't kind of get um, post-COVID because we haven't had that kind of face-to-face -face opportunity to keep building um, those relationships? Well, I think it's true to say that nothing quite replaces getting on an aeroplane, going to a particular market and spending some time there, meeting people, pressing the flesh, figuring out how things work and ferreting out the opportunities and then finding trusted partners to deliver your product or service or partner with you in your investment. So the longer the COVID uh, isolation continues, uh, the more those existing relationships will fray, the more difficult it is to cultivate new relationships. So we absolutely have to get back to some kind of new normality where business people are able to travel relatively freely, probably with a vaccine passport. But even with that, that's likely to be to a relatively small group of countries initially, hopefully expanding over time. And that small group of countries probably won't include many developing countries or emerging markets, which are growing most rapidly in some contexts. So that kind of challenge, I think, is likely to endure for some time into the future. So I think 
you know, the other the other big challenge, obviously, is to the China Australia relationship at the moment, and we've just seen the the sort of strategic economic dialogue um, has um, been discontinued, and admittedly a symbolic gesture, given it it hasn't meeting for it hasn't met for some time. Um, but where do you see the the China Australia trading relationship um, heading? And I guess is is there the potential within the trading system to um, perhaps make this relationship a little a little less bumpy, or or are we naive to think that and and it simply comes down to um, a much bigger set of geopolitical issues um, that may take a lot longer to resolve? I think probably the best way of looking at this question is how China is treating its other trading partners that are also. US allies, which is a very important part of the equation. So let's just say in the West more generally. And if one adopts that lens, it's very clear that the Chinese are in assertive mode and Australia's in the front of the queue, as it were. So I think the calculation on the Chinese side is that they're going to set an example of Australia uh, and not tolerate, in their view, certain forms of, of behavior that they don't like. And we've seen that very clearly in the list of demands that they've put out to, to Australian stakeholders. Um, so I do not see that pressure going away. China is a rising power. It's a very assertive power. Uh, and it's going to continue with this pattern for the foreseeable future. I also don't see Australia backing down. Um, and nor should Australia back down. But the really interesting thing within this is that, for the most part, Australian exports have diversified, with some significant exceptions. So we saw this recently in a very interesting lowing Institute analysis that showed this quite, quite clearly. Um, but there's certain segments, such as wine, for instance, uh, that have not been able to diversify. Uh, but for the most part, it's it's largely taken place through market-driven forces, and that's sensible, I think, and unavoidable. And you you mentioned uh, obviously the the kind of broader Western block here, and and obviously the U.S. relationship with China and its trading policies are incredibly important in this. Um, what have we seen, and are we likely to see in terms of? Um, the Biden presidency, uh, and and I guess in in contrast or you know any similarities that there are to the kind of posture that that Trump had on trade. What are you seeing there? So there are strong similarities, but I would say it's it's continuity with change. Um, so the continuity is in the bipartisan consensus to pursue a tough approach to China. The change is in how to pursue that approach. And so what we've seen the Biden administration doing right from the get-go was to emphasize its relationships with allies and then to corral allies, as it were, and also try to provide a, a united front from which to in, subsequently engage China. And so we've seen repeated assurances that we're not going to leave Australia alone on the field, same assurance has been given to, to other allies. It makes it much more difficult for China to then target specific countries if they're all moving in unison. 
I think that's good. That's all very well. But when it comes to very specific products, wine comes to mind. Um, the businesses within those allies aren't necessarily going to see things the same way. And so we continue to see, for instance, New Zealand wines being sold to the Chinese market, the same with US wines and so on and so forth. So there are limits to that kind of cooperation. I think Australia just needs to be realistic about what those, those limits are. But probably the signature um, effort on the Biden trade policy front will be about the domestic economic policy. And that's really about ramping up procurement, infrastructure spending, etc. But it is, it's not, not going to be a very open-to-the-world approach. So the emphasis on Buy America, uh, America First, if you like, by another name, that all remains very much there, I think, in the Biden administration. Another area, uh, certainly, that, that Biden has stepped out on has been throwing uh, America's support behind a move by the WTO to temporarily lift, temporarily lift patent protections uh, for COVID vaccines. How do you see this playing out? There certainly seems to be mixed views globally on this. Um, do you think there might be might be some kind of um, rapid resolution to this, or do you think it, it's something that, that the trade system can't necessarily resolve in the in the short time we really need it to? It was a very interesting move. It took many trade policy wonks by surprise, uh, and allies, I should say. So the Europeans immediately objected. We saw Angela Merkel's response, which was, we don't support this. China, for instance, with its COVID uh, vaccines, um, I doubt whether they support it, but, but we'll see. They'll support the compensation. Resolving it easily in the WTO, I'm not so sure about that. I think it's going to take quite some time. But from the Biden administration's point of view, what they've done, I think, is essentially two things. Um, so one is they've sent a clear signal to the pharmaceutical companies that it's no longer business as usual and that they have to do more when it comes to licensing uh, vaccine technologies. Uh, but on the other hand, they've thrown some meat to uh, the progressive side of the democratic base, which has been calling for uh, more leniency in, in the approach to intellectual property rights. So if one views it through that lens, it's, it's, it's as much about domestic US politics and restoring global leadership as it is about actually doing the right thing. Although I do think the intentions are there too, but it's a very complicated area for, for the reasons I think we know well. Absolutely, absolutely. We'll watch that one with um, with some great interest, I think. Um, the other issue, of course, with with the debate around uh, the Australia-China relationship is this idea that that Australia should diversify its trading relationships. And you referred to the fact that there has been some natural kind of market forces that have led to diversification in some uh, commodities where there's been some some challenges with China. But more broadly, we've obviously got, and you've mentioned, you know, things like the um, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership um, that's been agreed and other opportunities to really, you know, strengthen and, and broaden our trading relationships. Um, how do you see this, this kind of process of trade diversification playing out? And in particular, you know, how, how long does it, does it take? I think the idea that we can somehow pivot away from uh, the relationship with China that is so important and so big 
um, is is a little bit naive. It's going to take um, longer to diversify. But how do you see that kind of process playing out? And do we have, I guess, some of the right ingredients in terms of some of these big multilateral um, agreements and also some of the bilaterals? Yeah, I think it's useful to start with a sense of historical perspective. Uh, one goes back to the 1960s and 70s as the UK was looking to join the European community and Australia's access to the UK market came under threat. Uh, Australia, in essence, embarked on a diversification drive then with great success, diversifying away from the UK and to a lesser extent the EU markets into Asia. Um, so Japan was already a big deal by then, but particularly into, into Southeast Asia and other Northeast Asian countries. Later on, of course, China became the big story. In a sense, we're on the cusp of a similar imperative because I think that the China story is just going to get worse from, from here. There may be some ups and downs, but the broad story is it's going to get worse. Um, and then that gets back to the question of how, how to do diversification. So that's partly a story about which markets are you diversifying into. I think there's a lot of room for growth still in the, the ASEAN markets, uh, but also India has to be a big player. It's just a very difficult nut to crack, as, as we know. There's also a question around what does diversification actually mean from a sector uh, perspective? Um, that's, you know, there's a lot, lot of variation within that, but are we talking about goods exports? Are we talking services? Um, what exactly is it we're talking about? And then the how, and specifically, what is the role of the private sector versus the role of government? Now on that, I would say really it's, it's, it's predominantly a private sector problem in a sense, but the government can assist and facilitate first of all, by opening up new markets through free trade agreements and regional cooperation, as it is doing, also supporting businesses in actually accessing those markets through institutions such as, as Austrade, so fine-tuning those, maybe resourcing them better, according to the new market focus. Um, but then also get, getting the domestic story right. So what are the further reforms that need to happen on the domestic front to promote Australian competitiveness and structural change. Um, does that mean, for instance, more focus on advanced manufacturing? If so, what's driving that? Do we have the capabilities? Or does it mean a stronger focus on services? Uh, and so recently on that front, we saw DFAT launch the Services Export Action Plan, which I think needs to receive a lot more attention given the nature of the Australian economy. So it's a very complicated picture. It's not going to happen overnight, although to some extent it already has because of the China problem. But I don't think it's going to take as long as um, the doomsayers might think either. So I'll go back to that historical analogy of the UK joining the EU. Well, Professor Draper, I think that's a nice note to end on. You've given us a good dose of, I think, pragmatic uh, and realistic optimism on that front. So that's a that's a, a really great note to uh, end on. Uh, thank you for sharing your your expertise uh, across this important area for us today. Oh, thanks very much for having me on. Appreciate it.